Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Um, so, Colin, it's been a while. I know. Where have you been? Well, you know, um, I'm going to steal someone's tweet because these are not my words. I was getting ready for a hot girl summer, but instead <laughs> I have a fatigued old lady fall. And those are the words from Karen Keho on Twitter. That's where I am. How are Fat- you? <laughs> fatigued old lady fall. I'll have to steal that. <laughs> You know, I've had a pretty good year, actually. It's uh, nice to be back in the office, which is where I'm recording from. Very nice. That's a bit of a change. My cats aren't here to bother me, so I like that. (laughs) (laughs) To take over, to challenge you for your role. (laughs) Um, What documentary are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to be looking at the TVO original documentary, Ghosts of Afghanistan, which explores the lives of Afghans caught in the crossfire between the West and the Taliban. I'm heartbroken about the way things went in Afghanistan. Powerful armies invaded this country with slogans about peace, democracy, women's rights. It was a disaster. Now, the war in Afghanistan, when it started, I think was seen as this noble effort where the West would be, you know, taking out terrorists and the Taliban liberating women and girls, bringing freedom and democracy. But it sadly turned into this $2.3 $2.3 trillion travesty that, you know, led to the deaths of over 170,000 people. You know, we're talking Afghan civilians, aid workers, journalists, uh, soldiers, police. Uh, Nam, you know, when the war started in 2001, what do you kind of remember about the tone of how the war started back then? Uh, you know, to hear all those numbers of all those people that died, it's just really heartbreaking. Um, back in 2001, when the war started, I remember there was a split among some, but it's been interesting to see how history has been shaped as if everyone was on board with the war. I remember there were protests here in Toronto, in the States, all over Europe, and there was a mass uh, mass protest in the UK. Um, and just to go back to something that you just said, that it was a war that some saw as being noble, um, but... I think it's really important to remember that there was a lot of dissenting voices back then as well. This documentary also speaks to the importance of having voices on the ground. Uh, in journalism, we've seen foreign bureaus shut down because of budgets, but they play a vital role in getting a complete picture. As we see in the film, uh, what Graham was reporting from the ground contradicted the message that was put out through press releases from different governments, that everything was going the way it was supposed to go, that the Taliban was under control. Uh, It's also important for us to acknowledge that there isn't one narrative. And for those of us here, thousands of miles away in continents away from what's happening, we really need to listen more to what's being said by those on the front lines like Graham. The Graham you're referring to is, of course, Graham Smith, who is uh, a former Globe and Mail correspondent. He uh, wrote about the war in Afghanistan. He's the narrator of the film. He's in the film. And uh, I actually spoke to the film's director, Julian Scher, and we talked a bit about some of the seldom... uh, heard perspectives of the war in Afghanistan, mainly from urban and rural Afghans. Stay with us. Julian Sher, welcome to the podcast. 
Oh, it's it's uh, it's great to be here. It's it's a difficult topic, but uh, an important topic. What's going on in Afghanistan right now? Absolutely. Well, let's dive into it. And I know it's been a few, uh, almost two months, I think, since the Taliban came back to power. And I was just wondering, kind of, what your reaction was to seeing that happen. Well, I, I think it's a mixture of sadness, grief, shock, horror, anger, but also not surprise, uh, because uh, I've been to Afghanistan three times back at the height of the of the surge of Canadian troops in 2008 and 2009, when the generals were boasting and assuring us that the war was going well. And to my eyes and the eyes of many other journalists, it was not. And then when I returned with Graham Smith uh, for this documentary for, for TVO, um, it it was obvious to us, and it was in many ways the whole point of the documentary, that uh, what started off as the good war had turned into a bad war, and that the Taliban were winning, that they had amazing strength on the ground, that the issues were much more nuanced than we had thought, um, uh, that the, the lines of good and evil were not as clear as some of us would have imagined. And in many ways, that's the whole point of Ghost of Afghanistan. So I hope, you know, today on the podcast, we could get into some of those, some of those issues. But the, you know, the, the focus in the last couple of months, understandably, have been on the exit from Afghanistan, how ugly it was and chaotic and tragic, when in many ways, we should be looking at the entry. How did we get into this war? And what happened in the 20 years? And that's what Ghost of Afghanistan tries to look at. Yeah, there's a lot in that answer I want to unpack. I, I think, you know, you, you said you weren't surprised. And I think uh, a few people in the film, including uh, Ramatula Amiri, uh, who's, I think, a political analyst, you know, he also was not ex- surprised. But it seems like it caught, I guess, the United States political establishment and, you know, certain uh, media uh, commentators. It, it seemed like it caught them by surprise. So I'm just wondering why the, there seems to be that disconnect. Well, I think the the speed at which the Taliban took over and the collapse of the government forces um, and our our you know supposed allies, I think that shocked everyone. Um, I think there was a sense uh, as there were these difficult peace talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government um, that there was a chance for some kind of strained compromise where the Taliban would be given some seats in power. You know, just to recall, Taliban were thrown out of power in 2001 after the American invasion. Um, but they, they, they managed to, to regain strength to the point where the Americans are forced to negotiate with them. Um, and the Americans signed basically a peace withdrawal uh, agreement. But then the Taliban is supposed to sit down and talk with the Afghan government. And I think there was, uh, and people in our movie expressed the hope and fear, what would these negotiations would lead to? There'd be some kind of compromise government or coalition government. But I, I think what did surprise people is the complete collapse of the government forces, how much of a Potemkin village, how much of an empty shell this government, which had received billions and billions of dollars of aid from Canada uh, and the, the the rest of the Western alliance. For me, you know, the, the two things that really, well, 
I think the tragedy and, and seeing the desperation of people in Afghanistan, uh, especially in the cities and their worries and fears was one thing. But the two things that really struck me is it showed how we believed our own lies. We believed our own illusions that the, the people in power, whether it was Ottawa or London or, or, uh, or Washington, um, believe their own illusions about how strong our allies were, how good the training was, where all this money was going and all these, these uh, equipment. I mean, think about it. The Taliban didn't have a single plane. They didn't have, like, you know, you're talking about a 20-year war in which one side had no control of the air, right? It was, yeah. you know, millions of dollars. And so people believed, I think, their, their own myth. The second thing I think that struck me is, and a few people might remember this, but when, when people close their eyes right now and they think of Afghanistan and the Taliban taking over, what do they think of? They think of that chaos at the airport and those scenes of people hanging on to the planes. But what people might remember is there was this horrible suicide attack uh, by uh, uh, ISIS. And shortly after that, the Americans launched a drone missile attack, which they said was a righteous strike that had struck ISIS terrorists. This was the last military effort by the Americans in their sad 20-year war in Afghanistan, the last thing they did. And we now know uh, that it was 10 innocent people, including several children, that the man they targeted um, was in fact working for an NGO, had nothing to do with terrorism, and they destroyed his car and his family. So hmm. that's what people, I think, have to remember about the exit of Afghanistan, that it's so typical that that's the last act of the Americans, because there were so many similar acts like that, that enraged the population. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this, the war in Afghanistan, it was, I guess, considered a good war, a noble war. Obviously, it was coming after the uh, attacks on 9-11 and Al-Qaeda being harbored by the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. But it kind of went into this more, uh, I guess, horrible direction, like this terrible direction. And um, I just I wonder, you know, do you think that the intentions, I guess, of the U.S. and its allies to uh, remove Al-Qaeda... Um, to topple the Taliban, to bring human rights and democracy to Afghanistan. Do you think those, um, those, those aims were, I guess, noble, as they would, I guess, uh, frame it? I think you have to separate those. Those are two different goals, to, to uh, take on al-Qaeda and, 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 and Osama bin Laden, who the Taliban were, were, were harboring, is one thing. That's a military tactic. That's a, that, that's a very specific limited goal. To then, quote, bring human rights, democracy, freedom, and rights to women, that's a whole other separate issue, right? And I think you have to separate the, the two. What, you know, what, you know, Ghost of Afghanistan starts uh, Graham Smith, um, one of Canada's foremost war correspondents, um, uh, has covered Afghanistan for many years and and bought into the same dreams and hopes that we all did. It, exactly, you were noble. Graham uses that in the in the movie when he goes to Afghanistan um, shortly after the war starts. Um, he saw it as a noble cause. We were fighting the dark forces that brought us 9/11. Now the foreign troops are withdrawing. Whatever they leave behind, so far, it's not peace. 
And after the Taliban are removed and the hunt for al-Qaeda continues, you then add on this good you know, like, yes, we get rid of the bad guys, but now there's going to be elections. Women are going to go to schools, um, democracy, human rights. And we all felt wonderful about that. And uh, Graham goes through a journey. And that's why I decided to do the documentary uh, Gala Film Productions out of Montreal um, uh, wants to do a documentary inspired by Graham's work. And Graham and I know each other from our work together in Afghanistan. And when Graham uh, and I first talk and he says, I want to go back to Afghanistan and I want to see what went wrong with our dreams. I want to find out what happened to the people in uh, that I met, who died, who survived. And I said, Graham, it's the ghost of Afghanistan. Let's go back and do it. And so in tracking, he also thought it was noble as so many of us did. And then he began to realize that there was a, a, a dark side. He began to, to realize that our allies were not as good as we had thought, that our, some of our actions were creating the same kinds of human rights abuses that we were supposed to be fighting against, that there was torture going on in our name. Civilians were being killed in our name. So I think he began to realize that what started as a noble war, there was a dark side that we were ignoring and that was eating away at the very guts of what we were doing. And that landed up turning a noble war into, in the end, what landed up being a very ugly war. You know, there's a scene in the movie where we go to an orphanage where kids have been killed by the Taliban, where kids' families have been killed by the Taliban, but also by the Western forces and the Afghan government. And the woman writing, running the daycare says, um, the kids now no longer know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Um, mm. And I think that's, that's a sad but important lesson. Do you know who fired against your family? Uh, no. The war was between government and Taliban. And uh, both of them, I don't know who uh, fired on my family. I think, you know, you meant the darkness, the dark side of, uh, I guess, what we, what I guess us and I guess what the, our Afghan allies did in Afghanistan, I think can be seen in, I think, uh, Sar Sarposa prison. Could you just talk a bit about what, what went on there and I guess our own role in that? Yeah, you know, when you're making a documentary, I mean, you could do a news documentary where you kind of just, you know, expose a bunch of facts and take people through the facts. And we decided with Ghosts of Afghanistan that we didn't want this to be a classic voice of God documentary where it would be very important and you'd learn a lot of facts and possibly a bit boring. So, <laughs> you know, but we decided there'd be no old white men, there'd be no generals or politicians from Ottawa or Washington or London, even though I think there's a place for these men, and they're almost all men, to be held to account for what went wrong, that we would let the Afghan people speak. But the only, of course, big exception is that Graham, as a Western journalist, we would make a movie based on his story and his emotions. And Sarposa Prison was a key turning point because it's where Graham, um, uh, as a journalist for the Globe and Mail, investigates allegations of, so, of prisoners that Canadian forces handed over to our allies in Afghanistan were being brutally tortured in unbelievable the tragic and horrific ways. And when Graham exposes that in the Globe and Mail, 
He's denounced by the government of Stephen Harper. Um, uh, it's a huge debate in Parliament, um, and the government denies there's any problem. And Graham will continue to prove um, that there was serious abuses. There will eventually be a parliamentary hearings. And Graham's investigation does two things. It begins to change Canada and Canadians' views of our war. It was the first time I think Canadians who were following the news began to realize, well, wait a minute, if we're fighting for human rights and democracy, how come we're, our allies are engaging in the same torture that we're supposed to be fighting against? But also it was a personal turning point for Graham that he began to realize that the cause maybe wasn't as glorious as we thought. This shook me because it wasn't an accident of war. It was deliberate. It was a part of the design of the war. On a daily basis, prisoners transferred from Canadian custody into cruel hands. And there was an, an important twist to that. Graham's main source in this story, a tremendously brave human rights investigator called Ansari Baloch, um, who is quoted in Graham's articles, shortly after Graham's stories appears, he will disappear and will eventually, we will find out he was kidnapped and beheaded by the Taliban. And so in our movie, Graham goes, we track down the family and Graham is struck with grief and frankly, a fair amount of guilt that Graham's journalism contribute to this man's death. And you see what happens in the movie and how the, the family reacts. But Graham reflects on that in our movie because he begins to realize there were consequences even to our good intentions. Graham had a good intention. He wanted to expose the, 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 the torture and abuses that were going on in Canada's name. But those good intentions also had consequences. And, and I think that's an important lesson we need, we need to grasp. Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we heard a lot about, you know, uh, not just human rights workers, but also translators and, and other uh, Afghans who were there to kind of uh, assist with the, United, with the military, but also with journalists and protecting them. Um, and I guess, you know, he feels certainly, I think, uh, Graham, you can see in the film that he, he certainly feels uh, some, I guess, guilt about that that but do you do you get the sense that other journalists as well or other um uh, people who are other westerners i guess who are involved in the war uh feel i guess uh conflicted about putting uh afghans at risk to i guess uh aid in their efforts oh it's a it's a huge dilemma um uh you know for us it's a story it's a documentary it's a it's a movie uh but people's lives are affected by this. So it means, one, you have to take precautions. Uh, obviously, we were under huge security risk as as, uh, as Westerners filming in Afghanistan. Um, uh, we had the 20-minute rule where we would never film outside for longer than 20 minutes for, film, for fear of being kidnapped or attacked. And in the whole time we were there, we never saw a single other um, Westerner in the in the streets. That's how dangerous it was. But that also meant we couldn't walk the normal things you do in a documentary. Let's have a scene with Graham walking and talking with somebody. Well, you couldn't do that because it would not only expose Graham or and our film crew and me to danger, it would expose that person because you'd be flagging, you'd be putting a target on the back of that person saying, look, this person is speaking to Western media. What are they saying? In fact, uh, at one point, there's a scene in the movie where we go to Kabul University and interview um, 
some uh, students, girls and boys, young women and young men in a photography class. And they're talking about their hopes and dreams. And it, it's a it's an important scene because the women there, especially one woman uh, named Mary Ann, who we call the, the girl with the orange socks, because <laughs> all, all she wants to do is wear orange socks and it gets her into trouble in a very traditional country. So we're filming. We spend about you know a good half day on the campus. But at one point while we're filming, uh, a more conservative religious student comes up and starts arguing with the other students and us, saying we're spreading malicious lies. And it just showed the tension even there, much less in Kandahar. When we were in Kandahar, uh, a, a strong uh, base for the Taliban, everybody we met, we had to meet secretly in courtyards or in somebody's house. Um, so there were huge risks. And we, and we asked people what to do. And we changed some of the writing or some of the filming we did as production continued in order to protect the, to protect the people. And... To your point about the guilt that journalists feel, as you may know, uh, journalists from ourselves and the, and the people involved in the in this gala film production, uh, with the help of TVO, uh, the Globe and Mail, CTV, CBC, there was a whole network of journalists involved in trying to rescue as many of these colleagues who worked with us, and in fact, quite a few people who have worked on the film. Uh, managed to escape from Afghanistan and are now thankfully safe in Canada or the United States or elsewhere. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I was struck, though, by the divisions uh, in Afghan society. I mean, obviously, we saw the images of people trying to escape uh, from the airport, you know, escape Taliban rule. But I think you also talked to some people, some women even, who um, maybe aren't as fearful about the Taliban's return or, the, or maybe they're um, they look at it maybe a little differently. Can you just talk about some of that, the divisions in society and, and, and to what extent some people are actually um, maybe okay with the Taliban uh, returning to power? That, that's such an excellent point. And it's one of the main points that Graham and I wanted to make in the, in the movie. You know, when you, when you I, I've made many movies and documentaries in, in my career, but when, what you always want to do if you can is to surprise people. Um, uh, you you want to take them on a journey, and frankly, I'm interested in in dark journeys. I'm the kind of documentaries I do, and the and the, the, the books I have written are. I want to show the dark side of society, so that you hold a mirror to 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 us, and and so you begin to question some of your own beliefs and your own myths and your own illusions. So I, I think it is the task of a filmmaker uh, in documentaries to make people a bit uncomfortable, but to also make them laugh and smile and then make them reflect on some of their long held views. So Graham was very insistent, uh, given his long track record in Afghanistan, that yes, we would show uh, the girls, like the, the young women uh, at, uh, at Kabul University wanted to wear orange socks. We would show the young women in cafes with their boyfriends. We interview one of the leading feminist leaders um, who, who organizes a campaign called My Red Line, uh, because that is the main story that comes out of Afghanistan, women and women's rights. And it's so important. So we have all of that. But we took great pains to say, yes, that's all true. But that's urban women, urban middle class women in a handful of cities. And the minute you go into more conservative rural areas, it's quite a different picture. 
And that's the surprise we wanted to bring. And one of, I think, my favorite scenes, and I've been to screenings. So we had a screening at the Berlin Human Rights Festival recently. Um, and I've talked to other people who have seen the movie. One of people's surprising, jaw-dropping scenes, we call it the Burka tea party scene. There's a scene <laughs> about halfway through the movie where after meeting various feminist leaders, Graham says, well, I wanted to get a sense of what it was like in the countryside. And in, and you're not talking, that's where the vast majority of Afghan women and men live. And we meet a doctor who's working at a health clinic for many, many years in Kandahar. And she arranges for about a half dozen women in burqas to sit down, not only with a man, but with a foreign man uh, uh, during a tea party. And Graham talks with them. And you hear from these women a quite surprising view where they are young and lively and laughing and, and reflective. And they tell us how what they want is the war to end. Um, one of them says freedom isn't about whether you're wearing jeans or a burqa. It's, it's about freedom, uh, economic equality and freedom for schools and, and, and freedom to live and their, their, their family that are being killed by the bombs that they wanted the war to end. And when we ask them about the Taliban, uh, they say, look, we have our traditions. We're not afraid of the Taliban. Um, we'll, we'll live the way we've, we've always lived. Um, and yet there's also this uh, great scene where one of them, you know, points to her head and she says, but I have to admit, this burqa gives me such a headache. <laughs> and they all start laughing. So it brings it down. You know, the burqa became a very political you know, time bomb almost, and it brings it down to a very human level. But going back to the point that you raised, what it showed is that those women clad in a burqa who wore, by the way, they were wearing burqas long before the Taliban were there, and they'll wear burqas long after the Taliban leave, if the Taliban leave. You know, they were worlds apart from these young women uh, dressed in Western clothing, wearing orange socks at Kabul University. And they both realized they were worlds apart, but they kind of, in their own way, respected each other. They said, they have their ways, we have our ways. You know, that's what, you know, the problem, of course, is the Taliban and the Western forces and the government made it very political and made it military. But it meant that the people... I think we're convinced they could figure out a way to make it work. But this is a much more divided society than we thought, than we imagined. And 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 to see the the Taliban as like Martians, as people who came from some foreign, you know, these were Taliban were not foreign invaders, right? They are the the sons and brothers and fathers of people living in Afghanistan. I mean, there are foreigners and we won't get into Pakistan's role and all of that, but the point is, is that this is a very rooted, uh, deeply divided war, and people on both sides had really, really strong feelings, and that's what we try to show in the movie. I have to ask you about just how it is as a filmmaker for you to um, be working on something for so long. Um, you know, I've talked to many documentary filmmakers. Sometimes they spend years working on a doc documentary, and I guess you you know, you finish the doc, you think you have your ending and then events conspire to change that ending. I think <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, this film was actually ready to be uh, broadcast and then the Taliban swept to power and you had to actually um, go back into the editing room. So I'm just wondering, you know, like, did you have a different ending in mind for this film? 
it's yeah reality eh? don't you hate yeah. when reality uh, <laughs> <It> <laughs> blows sucks. up your plans for <laughs> for a documentary well i must say i must say i was very proud of the work we did because in the end uh not because we're geniuses or anything but just the way we had planned it and the story we told we actually did not have to change anything except some narration at the top and at the end but the movie always was pretty much literally frame for frame what people see now, right? The Graham's journey and we meet various people, the, the national security advisor for the president and a, a, a school director who's using Canadian money to build a school for girls and the feminists we talked about and the burqa tea party. And at the end of the movie, towards the end, we started saying, okay, here's all the divisions. There are these peace talks. Nobody knows how it's going to turn out, but there's a lot of fear and loathing, but it's a very divided country. And the last scene we always had were these young girls in the school that was originally funded with Canadian money um, who take off their burqas when they come into this private school and learn English and computers. But the last scene is them putting on the burqas to go back out into the streets of Kandahar. And that was always the last scene. The words over that last scene was kind of peace talks are going on, but who knows what's going to happen in the streets of Afghanistan. For now, the girls put on their burqas and go on to an uncertain future. That's what the movie was like. And what we were proud of is that when the Taliban started advancing you know we talked with tvo and we said look this is not a news documentary we're not going to keep updating it but we have to take into account these dramatic events and by the time the taliban swept into kabul all we had to do was change some of the narration because we had already said the taliban were gaining strength you quoted one of the people earlier you know who talks about that in our in our movie so we just added lines saying the taliban in the end didn't need the peace talks, they swept to power. And we kept that last scene of the girls putting on the burqa. And all we changed was the fact is that now they live under Taliban rule and they, like everybody else, face an uncertain future. Now, very little remains of the foreigners' plans for Afghanistan and the dreams we inspired, except for painted slogans on fortified walls. Soon, even those will disappear. I guess, are you hopeful for Afghanistan? Absolutely. You know, um, I've traveled, you know, I've done film documentaries in Somalia and in Baghdad and, and in all kinds of dangerous or, or sad situations. But Afghanistan tugs at you at a way in a way that few other places do. And uh, I think what we tried to show in the movie is the beauty of the country. I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. Yes, it's very poor, but you know, you just see the the beauty that the beauty in its harshness, right? The mountains and the snow and the rivers, um, and the but the people, right? And you you see in the in the scenes, you meet you know the uh, the kids playing cricket and people kite flying and, you know, the women in burqas laughing and joking at a tea party and, and these young women uh, dreaming of becoming photographers. Um, and we also meet the Taliban, you know, and they're fascinating in their own way. And, and, you know, whether you like it or not, some, especially the younger members of the Taliban have their dreams. So, um, 
look, right now it's hard not to be depressed because you see both the 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 dangers of some of our friends and colleagues that we're trying to get out. Um, you see some of the uh, abuses that are starting again and some of the quite scary things that the Taliban are either doing or, or announcing or threatening. But um, I think there is hope because of the strength that of the people we meet in the documentary and people will see when they when they watch the documentary you realize the courage and strength and and determination um but i think you also realize that this is for them to decide right um this is for the people to of afghanistan to decide amongst themselves and we can't have the arrogance to think that we know better and we could go in and fix things in a way that we think is is right. Um, uh, but I also think, and this is why I think ghosts of Afghanistan is so important, is that, you know, if, especially look at Canadians. When did we care more about Afghanistan? In the initial aftermath of 9-11, and then when Canadian men and women were dying and uh, fighting as soldiers then. But then once Canada left, it largely disappeared, right, in off the pages of our newspapers and in the consciousness of most Canadians until the, the evacuation at the airport. It was briefly in the news, and now it's faded again. And I think what we hope with Ghosts of Afghanistan, you know, uh, TVO has put it up on YouTube so anybody could, could watch it, is that we don't forget or abandon Afghanistan, right? In many ways, this is a mess we created, uh, they have their own problems, but we made it worse. So we have a responsibility. So I'm hopeful, but I'm I'm worried that we'll ignore uh, and forget about the people of Afghanistan. And I hope the movie will remind people uh, about why it's important uh, not to forget uh, what we did and what the hopes and dreams of the people of Afghanistan are. Well said, Julian. Thank you so much for joining me today on Ondocs. Thank you. It's It's been a pleasure to talk to you about this, and, and uh, I hope this helps uh, uh, do what, uh, what any good documentary should do, is just help people reflect and have uh, uh, some deep thoughts uh, and maybe some inspiration. Stay safe. Thank you. Well said. And that's the podcast. Ghost of Afghanistan is streaming right now on TVO.org and on TVO's YouTube channel. We've got a special bonus episode for you this week that's out right now. I spoke with Frishta Bastan, an Afghan-Canadian community organizer and poet. We talk about what growing up in Canada was like for her during the war in Afghanistan, the beauty of Afghan culture, and pushing back against negative stereotypes. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.